let's crack open a beer and share some thoughts. Welcome to Opinions and our first show of a new year, and indeed a new decade. Happy New Year to all of our listeners, and to you too, Martin. Uh, happy New Year to listeners and, and to you as well, Steve. Um, but we're not alone today, and, and this is something a little bit different for us. We're joined by Chris Hall from Howling Hops um, in an episode that will be forever known as the Hall and Oates Show. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, so, so, Martin, what, what are we doing and why is it different from just me and you sat in your kitchen talking? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, new year, new ideas. Uh, but apart from that, we thought, try something a little bit different. So we were going to talk to Chris Hall, who most people either know or know of anyway, um, about the history of Howling Hops. So we're going to do it on a, we're going to do a journey, a physical journey, yeah. from their origin in here, the Southampton Arms, in Highgate. And we're going to go by the Cock Tavern and end up in the Howling Hops Tank Bar. So, looking forward to this. And enjoying some Howling Hops beer al- along the way. Yeah, I haven't straight away, I have to admit. No, but no, you, you two haven't. have, haven't you? Yes. You two both got Howling Hops. <laughs> yeah, so I've got the, uh, the Power XX, yeah. uh, which is on cask today, and it's tasting absolutely beautiful. It's really soft, really fruity, just, just really light, really easy to drink. Absolutely what I wanted to start with today. Not, not bad for a Monday afternoon then? No, no, not. <laughs> not, not, not at all. Um, what about you, Chris? What, what are you on there? Uh, I've got Tropical Deluxe, which is another one of our core beers, uh, also on cask, and exactly the kind of thing I want to be drinking uh, in the Southampton Arms. And yeah, quite fitting to kind of drink it here in that context. Yeah, and but you're not drinking. I'm not. I am going to have uh, some some handling hops cask before I go because it's not actually that often I see it out in the wild anyway. Um, I've actually gone straight for tracks and Omer on draft. Okay. There, so. there was a moment there where you came in, touch a go, there was the brown kernel label, and I thought, he's going for a kernel. He's going for a kernel, 7% at lunchtime yeah. on Monday, he's going straight in. <laughs> and I was very, very close to doing that, but we've got a bit of recording to do today. We, we have. So yeah. I've had to put my better instincts away <laughs> and gone for the track sonoma. So I've gone for a nice gentle start. Okay. That's very difficult for you. I appreciate your sacrifice. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is, this is the things I it's do. A real, it's a real struggle. <laughs> the, the struggle is real. Yeah. Uh, so Chris, you mentioned um, it's quite fitting to be drinking cask beer in the Southampton Arms. Mm. It's got cask howling hops in, in, in the Southampton Arms. So, so this, this is where howling hops started the, the, yeah, their journey, I, isn't it? I guess it's where the idea for Howling Hops kind of first came about. Um, so our, our owner, Pete Holt, took on uh, the Southampton Arms and opened it in 2009. So uh, just back in November, it celebrated its, its 10th sort of anniversary uh, under new management. And when Pete took it on, he was very keen to not only kind of like... Um, I guess the best word is like represent the best things about the pub itself but also try and represent the best things going on in beer at the time uh, he had identified that there was a big sea change going on and back then in 2009 that was really before things really started to kick off no oh, definitely uh, in London yeah but there was definitely enough going on in the area around it and in other parts of the country that it warranted um, definitely wanted a, a place that represented good, small, independent breweries beer. Mm-hmm. And that's what the Southampton Arms is really all about. 
That's um, still the ethos now as well, isn't it? Yeah, very about much the, so. About independent brewers, whether that be cider producers or beer producers. Yeah. It's very much about the independent. So, uh, as you were saying earlier when we just got here, there's a big sign outside that says, Ale, Cider, Meat. And that is very <laughs> much the ethos <laughs> of the Southampton Arms. It's the main food groups, isn't it? It's yeah. all taken care of. Just behind us is a nice little sort of display case where typically there'll be like a little side of pork and crackling and stuff going on in there and all kinds of delicious pork-based goods are normally uh, being consumed here. Um, so it's a very classic pub experience, but not putting too much shine on it to make it into something more gastro. It's trying to like strip it back to a, a drinking occasion kind of venue and celebrating the great things about British drinking culture. It's only recently that it's come to the conclusion, I know why I always thought the Mar- Marble Arch felt very familiar, because of here, the Southampton oh, okay. Arms and the Marble um, Arch. I think have a lot in common yeah. with the way the pub is set up. There's a lot, a lot of tiling. There's a lot of I wouldn't say old memorabilia because the snuff was probably a lot of this stuff probably has grown with the pub anyway. Mm. But I think it has a similar feel to the Marble Arch, minus the slope. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is a very classic pub, isn't it? Start the style wise. Yes. It's, it's in the nicest way possible. There's no thrills. Yes. Yeah. You've got some seating, you've got some tables, and you've got a bar. Yeah, and, and you, a really you know, small and a, and a court, lovely, courtyard at the back still. Yeah, and a, and a lovely roaring open fire as well. This time the year, which yeah, is an absolute winner for a pub. Yeah, for those of you that haven't been in before, it's is similar in some ways to the Marble Arch, and it's it's very kind of classic, stripped back kind of feel, wood and tiles and beer. Yeah, and there's you know there's a I would describe this pub as just being like pure atmosphere. Um, more often than not, when you walk in here, especially in like winter, you can just kind of like feel the atmosphere like washing mm. over you. You come in, there'll be like one of the regulars like tinkling away on the piano. Maybe his mate comes along, gets the trumpet out. You're just sat there like drinking beers and you just feel like you've been like utterly immersed, not just in like beer culture, but like something that's a little bit older than what we think of beer mm-hmm. culture now. And so this all spun off. This was the beginning of the journey wanted to showcase the pub and the quality beers that were yeah. available. So P was P was kind of, once he'd put all of this together and opened it and seen how popular it was and understood that that demand for, for good beer had returned to London and it didn't have to be <clears throat> under the yoke of, you know, big companies and tied pubs, that it was possible to bring those all those good elements together. He started to think more and more about what kind of beers if he had to choose what kind of beers he might like to have of his own on here, how that might come about. Um, and that led to the next pub that we'll go to later on, the Cox Tavern. Okay, so no, there was no, so the gestation of Howard and Cox is here. Yeah. This is what started the process. Mm. Okay. But so no, no physical brewing ever went on on, on, on no. site here. Um, but he has retained We've still got the Southampton Arms, we've still got the Cock Tavern and the Tank Bar and they are not, not by any way, by any means like an estate of pubs or anything as grand as that, but this is like the kind of, the family, this is like the, the family tree, the ancestry of where like the mm-hmm. breweries Again, come from. Not dissimilar to Marble Arch. Yeah, Marble, exactly. With yeah. a brewery and two, two pubs where they can sell their stuff through. I think mean, it's cracking having those two. I mean, the Cock Tavern, again, when we get there, we'll talk about it a bit more. Mm. But again, there are similarities there as well, aren't there? Yeah, I'm you know, just utterly blessed to be able to have not just our own brewery, but to have like two of like, long before I'd ever worked for them, like what, two of like what I'd always considered to be like the finest pubs in London, if not the country, um, that have 
all those things that people want from a pub. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, especially now. I mean, I mean, I'm in here now. I can see cask and keg, and there's a, a decent range of ciders. So just as a starting point, there's a fair few things already ticked off. If you're looking for range, and especially when you sort of get into the summer months here, I can imagine that the cider probably ramps up a little bit as well. Yeah. But um, you know, I'm looking at the the food board: pork pies, cheese and chutney bat, cheddar plateau, oh, veggie scotch egg. Mm. Not sure about that one, but hey, we'll let it pass. <laughs> It's January, uh, but yeah, and then peanuts. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant! I love that. Love it. Yeah, I, I this is basically this it. is basically like the the episode you guys did. We had some of our beers, and you're doing like the desert island at a bar. Like when I was like listening to that, and to be honest, having a great deal of difficulty trying to imagine my own just because of the sheer breadth of choice. Yeah, I realised the place I was kind of constructing in my mind actually did look a lot like South <laughs> I was like, oh, that's what he did. He figured out exactly what people wanted, and then he just gave it to them yeah okay, yeah good, good business model to be fair <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely so Chris you say um, obviously you know you've, you've not really been with Howling Hops for that long it's about a year or so now isn't it less than that so only like seven months okay um, what was your journey in, in, in Spear because you've, you've in the nicest way possible you've been around a little bit before then. I know <laughs> I'm an old hand yeah. Um, yeah. Where, where did it all start for you and, and, and how did how did that come full circle to you now working for, for Howling Ops um, so my beer story I guess really begins when I went to university in Leeds uh, around the time when a lot of microbreweries were starting to open um, the legislation that uh, basically meant that Lots of small breweries were able to open and operate, paying slightly less duty than the larger ones. Came into a force in around 2003, and when I went to university in 2004, five and six, um, it was particularly prevalent in West Yorkshire, and that was like my first kind of experience. So not just like good beer, but interesting beer and also local beer, and I kind of tied all of those things together. That's what they, they all meant the same thing to me. Leeds is a great beer city mm-hmm. yeah and North Bar would have been open by, by then yeah. as well wouldn't it yeah and North, North Bar was like that was that was a fancy place to go to <laughs> if you're a student <laughs> I was going to say actually like, if you're a student yes first time I had Brooklyn Lager was uh, on draft was at North Bar and so I remember thinking it was incredibly expensive <laughs> compared to what I would usually be drinking but my, my, my first experience of beer in that respect was locally made real ale and they were using all these kind of exotic new hops like Cascade and things like that and it was very exciting and it was also very affordable and accessible uh, even to a, a student and after I'd lived and studied in Leeds for a few years I uh, after I graduated I ended up getting a job uh, in a tail sales office uh, near where I lived in Henningley which was also like the, the he- basically the, the head office in the north for what is now Molson Coors and used to be Bass Charrington so the company that here owns Carling and Grolsch and Worthington's and so on um, so that was like my, f- my first real entry into beer professionally was in the, in the shady world of big beer but that was just a, a t- what was only going to be a temporary job for me just to save up some money uh, to go travelling yeah. but ended up becoming something that I became more and more interested in um, and my friends some of my friends joined me in that um, it was around like those first times I like you know home brewing and all that kind of stuff it was a time where I was feeding myself with knowledge uh, a lot of it from work where you could actually in big beer like completely fill your brain with like 
you know bare knowledge if you really wanted to a lot of people just didn't care it was just a job to them yeah. but um, that knowledge was there to be absorbed um, after that I like I said saved up money for traveling and I lived abroad for a little bit and when I came back to the UK uh, I moved to London and this was at the beginning of 2011 which was excellent timing <laughs> because it was when, that was exactly when things really started to change here yeah um, so my, my early experiences of beer in London were basically just loads of very identical pubs which were not very interesting to me but having access to a couple of like interesting lo- local bottle shops that were stocking beers from the likes of the Colonel and Camden Town and then Partizan and Brew by Numbers and so on uh, obviously stuff like Thornbridge was available as well and that was when I started to realise that something else was happening um, I'd had some beers from Brewdog at that time. I remember the first time I had Punk IPA and like brought a bottle home from Tesco and like opened it and then basically ran around my student house <laughs> saying like, smell this, smell this. What the hell is like going on with this beer? Um, that was like, that was like uh, a crazy thing to think about now. But yeah, this is almost, you know, 10 years ago now. So after living in London for a little bit, and starting a blog and starting to put together my interest in writing and my interest in beer. After a few years, managed to do some freelance bits and pieces, managed to write uh, a couple of magazines with friends that I'd made at the time through beer, and then ultimately led to my first job in craft beer, which is at Brew by Numbers in 2015, uh, where I worked for just over two and a half years uh, during a major growth period for them. Yeah, oh yeah, very big growth period for them, um, wasn't it then? Yeah, and that's, that's obviously when I realized that this is, I was in the right place at the right time and that this was something that I really cared about and that's something that I should be involved in professionally. It wasn't just like, it's fun. It was like something serious is happening now. And if you have a, if you have a skill that you can apply to it and you have an interest in it, then it's almost your duty to kind of take part in what was going on. I'd agree with that. I think if you find something you're passionate about mm-hmm. and enjoy, and there's a way of actually it becoming your your day job yeah. and obviously being in the beer industry that's a bit of a night job at, at times as well yeah i think you should go for it it's, it's, if you can make it work if you can yeah. make it work then definitely why wouldn't you um but again this 2015 feels like a very long time ago now uh and beer stuff and <laughs> things that happen in a <clears throat> relatively short period of time there um feel very very long ago indeed like i remember the first time Ruben has released like a, a New England uh, style Palo, um, which we had to, we were amongst like the first in the UK to be really doing stuff like this. It was before Cloudwater had really like gone down that kind of route and we had to, I remember printing up these extra labels to go onto all the boxes of the bottles and the, bo- and the actual kegs themselves explaining to people that it's okay for it to, this beer to look like that so and, a bit of a descriptor uh, yeah it's it was like this kind of disclaimer kind of boilerplate thing saying this is this, this beer's appearance is completely natural we're not apologizing for it we're just saying this is what it's supposed to look like and uh yeah that feels like a very long time ago now when oh, it's, yeah, it's almost the opposite is true yeah um, well that's it's a nice little segue you've given us there because um we were lucky enough for listeners of the show to send in some uh, some questions for you uh, not for me and Steve. We, I'm just going to ask questions. Nobody Steve wants to ask us anything anymore. Do no, they? no, no. No one wants to talk to us. Um, and uh, one which is quite appropriate is uh, from James at Gammon Baron. What beer now is the archetypal juicy banger? 
Right. Which, which I think is one of the uh, the many phrases that, that you've coined over your your blogging <laughs> career. Yes. Uh, so I, I think I wrote uh, I sort of wrote about Juicy Banger back well probably around that's uh, it actually preceded my job at Brew My Numbers. I think I think it was around 2014. We were writing about um, myself and Matt Curtis and Mark Dredge around like drinking beers in a lot of places and seeing beers that were. Oh, definitely juicy and very drinkable and sessionable freshness was a factor and cans were starting to become a thing around that time um, and yeah locality was a factor as well and this was just me trying to tie all those threads together in a blog post about something that was happening in, in London and elsewhere obviously these kind of hops um, they exemplified those flavours have been around for a while but we were starting to see a bit of a change in terms of how these beers were presented, what kind of yeast were being used, and what kind of like ultimate beers were being produced as a, as a result of that. Um, so when I think about Juicy Banger then, as opposed to now, they're like vastly, vastly different. Uh, so let was turn to two parts then. So what, when you were doing that writing, so 2014, 2015, mm. what would have been your, what would be your name of a Juicy Banger then? I remember being in such an enormous fan of um, Cameron Town's IHL uh, around that time uh, back when Alex Troncoso and Cones um, lost and grounded um, I'd cooked up this recipe with them where it, it joined the Camden's growing mm-hmm. lava lager and their technical expertise and their, all these like incredible hops they had access to into something which was a, a basically a very juicy hoppy lager which really crossed the boundaries I thought IHL was excellent when I first had yeah. it was superbly drinkable for its 6% plus yeah. mm. I think it was well. I think it was a bit of a watershed moment I think in London in terms of like uh, uh, a beer of not just that kind of flavour but of that kind of quality and technical accomplishment yeah. looking back now I think it was actually really important beer when it came out um, stylistically then, as well I think it was the first time we had seen yeah, something calling itself like by that, that kind of yeah. name, yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, an India Pale Lager like that, for me, kind of exemplified this uh, drinkability and sessionability and this, like, pronounced flavour, because drinkability and sessionability were these key components of what I thought a Juicy Banger was. Um, but then seeing kind of, like, juiciness and what Pale Ales and IPAs were and have become you know these these are two very different points in the landscape now so i think that that was the kind of beer that i was thinking of at the time as exemplifying that because it was something that was incredibly flavor forward and flavor expressive but it retained this incredible balance that made it so drinkable even at that as you say that you know that six six plus plus, Mm. six two or something Uh, yeah very drinkable um immensely drinkable so what would you if you had to transfer that now to say 2019 start of 2020 um could you apply that phrase i think my my archetypal juicy banger in that respect would probably sit somewhere between possibly something like you and i drinking right now like draxnimer or or howling hops tropical deluxe and maybe at the upper spectrum more towards like Dea's steady rolling man um, where they've still managed to capture all of that intensity of flavour but also retain the drinkability yeah. if I was to project perhaps what a lot of people's archetypal juicy banger might be it would probably be something in the 7 or 8% range and be modelled after 
uh, New England IPAs of like Tide Hands, Treehouse, other half, um, something more in that kind of realm, um, which are much more low bitterness beers, much more residual sugar, emphasizing juiciness above all else. Um, but a lot of that comes from grain as opposed to hops. Yeah. Um, so it's it's been kind of interesting to see that trend kind of develop what we've picked up and perhaps what we've lost along the way. Which I think you, one of your more recent blog posts was in that sort of vein, wasn't it? Yeah. It's like, I think there's been a, a lot of things which we've gained enormously from having very close ties with American drinking culture, especially as like, uh, the breweries and the major exponents of those different kinds of styles have become better friends in a transatlantic yeah. kind of like way. We've like exhibited at each other's like festivals on both sides of the ocean, um, and that that gap in what we thought was going on in our beer culture, we originally thought was a passage of time, but actually it was just like a passage of like techniques and like methods and yeah. like how quickly we were trying to catch up has actually perhaps put us on like a kind of momentum which is allowed maybe missed a lot of the things that we could have been doing right along the way i'd always thought that we were going to be able to catch up with the states pretty fucking quickly in terms of like what we would be able to make technically and what we'd be able to do yeah and how we'd be able to exhibit it um but i kind of hoped that we were going to avoid some of the potholes along the way Um, okay and i don't think that's happened i feel like we've we've allowed ourselves to kind of like fall into some of the traps that come with beers that are desirable above being flavorful. Okay, I think that's maybe something we can expand on over the next couple of stops anyway. Yeah, I think we can, I think we can come back to that yeah. with, with, without a doubt. Now, in, just going back to your journey a little bit, I mean, you must have seen a lot of that happening because after Brew by Numbers, you were at the bottle shop for a while, weren't yeah. you? So you yeah. must have seen kind of that um, increase in the number of beers being produced in the UK mm-hmm. but also the beers coming in from the States and how closely those two were, were matched so what, what was your time like work, working in I suppose in distribution more so than for, for a beer brewery? That was, that was absolutely eye opening in so many ways um, I was really interested in working in as many different kind of parts of the beer industry as I could and the, the job of the, that I had at the bottle shop was uh, was an amazing opportunity to learn so much about like you say not just what was going on here but going on in other places and seeing maybe with a gives you the ability of not just being in one brewery be able to step back and see what's going on and like lots of other ones at the same time um, what kind of trends were taking off uh, but also what kind of what kind of breweries were trying to follow those trends and sometimes the trends not helping them at all um, other times you'd come across a brewery who was going not really much attention at all but were doing things incredibly well and you had your kind of heart in your mouth being like god I really wish I could sell more of this beer but people just don't care about it whereas like whenever an Omnipolo shipment came in with beers that we would find of sometimes very variable technical quality these things were being sold before they'd even landed in the warehouse they were going straight out the door that must be quite frustrating at times it was very confusing as well as frustrating and often disheartening, especially when you be at the point where, I, I, where I'd been working professionally in beer for like a number of years and so I'd got even more knowledge and even more like kind of training and even more kind of better understanding uh, of the technical qualities and flaws of beers from one who works closely with like really talented brewers. Yeah. 
uh, and then seeing things which seem to be technically and objectively bad becoming so incredibly popular. Uh, I know Napolo is not like the scapegoat for that in my case. Like you could apply that to a lot of different kinds of beers from a lot of different kinds of breweries, but it was always most shocking um, when you saw beers which barely made sense on paper. Never mind, like when you actually drink them. <laughs> To, to be so popular and to sell so well and then entering into this kind of like this kind of emperor's new clothes territory of people who have spent a huge amount of money on a single can of something which they just have to believe is as good as what they've spent their money on for it and they just kind of have to rate it as being good whether regardless of not they actually if they tasted it blind they would feel the same way um, yeah it was a bit being, being around and being able to watch all of that kind of stuff happen in real time was very, very strange. Um, and now we're, I wouldn't say we're continuing exactly the same course, but we've now got a situation in the UK where I think there are an increasing number of people who are jaded and quite cynical working in the beer industry who don't necessarily feel like they want to be producing the beers which are desirable. Uh, even though it might be something that they actually need to do in order to survive. Isn't that weird though? I mean, yeah. I think we can come back to that as well because it's an interesting perspective that you've got versus say what we might have as, although we do the podcast, we're still essentially punters. Yeah, we, cons- we consumers, aren't we? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, whereas you're seeing it, seeing it from both sides of the fence and have done for a few years now. Well, that'd be quite an interesting thing to come back to as well because I'm really interested to know how that works and it must be frustrating for people selling it and for pe- people producing it saying well these are the beers I really want to do about 50% of the people I'm selling to want it something else yeah it's I think it, it is I think it's so so confusing and so challenging for for brewers now who've had all this like technical training and this this immense capacity for learning in terms of what they can create and how they want to create it in a this isn't about like an old school versus new school kind of argument this is like the, what they've been trained to do and how they have been like now kind of trained to not do what they were trained to do um, so you end up with a, uh, an, an even newer school of thinking which is like how do we mitigate the problems of these emergent popular styles uh, in order to still create balanced beers and there's like you know, there's now literature you know to, to support this like people putting together books about you know how you create these kind of beers and like how you <coughs> mitigate for the fact that well okay so you wanted to make this let's call it um, just picking a style out of the air like a milkshake double IPA yeah. okay so you've decided that that's what the end result is going to be and you know that it needs to be eight nine percent and there's going to be some lactose in there um, but first of all you've decided this is a really really strong beer but it also needs to be residually quite sweet because of all this alcohol presence in there. Normally, we would when you're looking at like a, a strong beer like that, you're trying to balance that residual sweetness against bitterness. Yeah. But then, no matter what you're doing in terms of like the hops you're using, when you're making a beer like this, you're throwing all these hops into it, and whether you like it or not, you're still gonna get a fair whack of IBUs like going in there, regardless of how laden in what quantities they've been used. And then you've got all this kind of like chalky, hot powdery kind of like character to it. So like, okay, we need to mitigate that with some lactose. And then we're going to like, oh, actually, while we're at it, should we just chuck some like fruit puree and stuff in there as well? Like add this other dimension to it. 
and you realize that these like a lot of these stars are just like this kind of runaway train of <laughs> like kind of technical like missteps and you're like what if we created a beer that's as drinkable as this nine percent lactose fruited thing but it was actually five percent and you didn't need to add all of these additional things along the way in order to make it drinkable yeah you just started with drinkability Rather instead than of result. like hoping to achieve drinkability <laughs> with this incredibly difficult like math problem so it's almost working yourself. backwards here's 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 the end formula but how did you get yeah there? So like like beers that we beers that we make uh, howling hops like New England IPAs in particular like recently have been all about trying to figure out how we deliver what people want but can also satisfy ourselves that these are technically competent you know and well made and uh, not doing any disservice to let's face it very expensive ingredients that we're using. Well, I think it's an excellent point for me to go to the bar and get a howling hops on cars. <laughs> Well, I think, I think that's probably an excellent point to, to, to end this little part of, uh, of our journey and, and, and move on to our next stop. Okay, we're at stop number two, the Cop Tavern, on our journey through the history of Howling Hots. And uh, before we go too, too much further into it, we've all got the same beer. We've all got the new old London Porter on cask. Incredible. Either you had it on cask before? No, this is actually my first time. Um, I've been looking forward to it for a little while. Well, let's, uh, let's do a little cheers and you know, cheers. see what we think about it. I'm going to repeat my earlier comment. Incredible. It's just, um, <laughs> it's, it's everything you want from a London style Porter which is, is a little bit smoky, lots of uh, roasted notes in there, a little bit of dark chocolate on the finish to, to give it that little sort of like bittersweet finish. And the, the, the cask version of it just does exactly what you expect it to and just softens all of that and makes it really smooth and easy I was going to say, it's quite soft strength. and quite light, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's got that sessionability about it. That yeah. It's coined the phrase we had last year, it's a bit pintable, really. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Nice temperature as well, actually. Nice yeah, cars, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cellar temperature. And it's, it's not a huge ABV, where is it? It's, uh, it's only four, a 4.8, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah so yeah. very, very much pintable. Uh, very similar, I suppose, to Five Points Railway Porter. Yeah, which was which is one of the like kind of inspirations for us uh, where we wanted to hit in terms of drinkability. It's fairly much the benchmark, um, isn't it? I would say. Yeah, for like modern modern London ports, I think theirs is is still outstanding. Um, and yeah, for us, we were for something around that kind of area we wanted to have really complex malt structure it's it's not just malt forward it's like it's almost all about those malts but like there's a some sprinkles are like some interesting like hops in there too to give it kind of edges where it needs it I think it's when we first released it and it was just cans and kegs we were drinking it uh, obviously at a different temperature with like a different kind of combination yep. to it and it, it those like roasty and hoppy notes were a little bit more pronounced whereas this has got more of that kind of like toast kind of like yeah ready kind of character to it it's got that balance which comes from it being a, a cask version yeah. of that beer hasn't it yeah you know? when, like when you guys drank on your desert island uh episode i think it was you steve that i just said it's like coffee and toast and i was like that's what it is it's just like it's a good descriptor. Saying, yeah, it's it's, it's like a, I'm not saying it's a breakfast beer. It kind of is a breakfast beer. Yeah, I mean, he says having toast delivered like, to the desert island after all. Yeah, 
So imagine that. It's a slightly milky coffee and then like a sort of like a slightly crunchy toast kind of like quality to it. That's like the kind of balance of flavours there. Um, I think on cask, just as I'd hope, it just makes it like gulpingly drinkable. Yeah, I mean, um, we're at varying yeah, stages, but I mean, that's mainly because we've been sort of warming up, but it, this wouldn't take long to go. This I, don't, is, I don't think this it's going to last, last long in this glass, no. <laughs> um, so we're at the Cock Tavern, which is Mayor Street, Hackney. Um, it's not necessarily where people would have expected a few years ago to have found a pub selling a diverse and wide range of beers. So, um, Chris, why, why are we here at the Cock Tavern? Well, in many ways, the Cock Tavern is the, is the sequel to the Southampton Arms. So, um, the Southampton Arms uh, was reopened by Pete back in 2009. Uh, so, you took on and reopened the Cog Tavern in 2011. Um, this is a bigger venue. Um, it's in the Southampton Arms. Uh, it's a classic kind of Victorian corner London pub just as you might imagine if you've never seen it before. Um, it's absolutely another absolutely beautiful pub where we try to like retain all the best features that it already has uh, and give them the kind of the, the loving care that they need. Uh, it's also a pub where ultimately Howling Ops itself was actually born uh, in the basement. So the general manager here at the time, Tim O'Rourke, became the brewer of the beers uh, on a tiny little kit downstairs. Um, and when I say a tiny little kit, I mean uh, there's also a kind of very short basement reflecting the age of the pub in that respect. Yeah. That you could literally, like, so it's I, not, I would not be able to stand up I was going to say, it's not designed for six foot plus walking around the cellar, <laughs> no. I presume. No, you really do need to be, like, five, nine or below, ideally around five, seven or six. And to, have, uh, have no eureka moments. That's, so. a very, that's a very specific job description, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. As, as well. Yeah. Must be less than five foot nine. Excuse me, yeah. why are you being sizes? <laughs> very, very practical You'll reason. You'll understand when you get down there, yeah. Um, but it's funny because it... It wasn't just like a, a place where we decided to explore with like the kind of beers that we wanted to make and wanted to serve the public, but also the kind of way we were going to be serving those beers. So I think Tim had brewed in the region of like 100 different beers here before we got the, the Tank Bar in Hackney Wick. Um, so it, that was like not just growing his experience as a brewer and growing the kind of breadth of stuff that we could release here, but when you are able to kind of, uh, I guess, kind of what you, what you might call in TV terms like a backdoor pilot yeah. in that kind of way where you get to kind of release your characters your story idea perhaps in a different kind of way to see how they respond with audiences I think when you get to create your brewery at a small level and get to serve those beers over the bar in a well established pub and get to see people's interactions and responses with them I think that informed very much what kind of beers we're going to make well, I mean that sounds very similar to um, a, a band or a stand-up comedian yeah. doing the small independent circuit yeah, before they get the chance to do an <laughs> arena or a stadium. Yeah. So um, very sphere, yeah. a lot of synergies there, I would say. Yeah, as ever, the comparisons with music are always perfect yeah. when it comes to being in <laughs> that respect. So, um, so for a while then, this, this I suppose, could have been termed as the, the, the Howling Hops Taproom as, yeah, as, as and well. Yeah, and it was essentially the first brew pub uh, of its kind in London for many, many, many years. Um, I suppose, in, I mean, are, are we including the old Firkins? I guess those would be the last ones. They were the last ones, guys, and that was, yeah. um, you know, they were a chain of Firkin yeah. pubs in and around. I mean, that was the old dog bolter days, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. It was the Firkin yeah. pubs. 
So this would have been the first one after they sort of died a death. Yeah. This would have been the first one for what? Good ten years or so, easily. Yeah, if not, yeah, if not more. Yes. Um, so yeah, this is where the Howling Hogs idea became kind of a reality. Um, but we were also at that time doing kind of the precursor to what we've ended up doing at the tank bar. So as well as like creating beers that would have been served on Cascade, that were actually uh, serving tanks in the basement as well. So they, in its own way, that was like the sort of precursor to us doing tank fresh beer. Oh, I never knew that. Yeah. No, no I didn't know. So as well as so serving it up in the pub in traditional format, yeah. you, you Howling Hawks were selling it, from, yeah. you had tank fresh beer. Simply because it made uh, the most economic and kind of labour intensive kind of like So logistics, as much as anything else? Yeah, so I mean, I believe, as, as far as I understand, it's still in use. Um, <laughs> for some of Tim's projects that we still have going on here today. So now the Cock Tavern's basement brewery uh, is called Short Stack, and that's where Tim gets to do his kind of own like pilot projects, uh, some of which we've then branded as Howling Hobbs beers and taken to uh, beer festivals with us or used for other kinds of events. Um, so it's, it's still a, a functional part of the business uh, for us and something that is still very much part of like the DNA of the brewery. That's I, again, I didn't know that either. Yeah. Actually, I, did, I thought that once you guys had moved to the tank bar, but the brewery side of it had stopped here. Yeah, with Tim continues to have like, bits and pieces going on here all the time. He's, he's he, in, like, he loves uh, being in the cramped environment then. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's it, for, for Tim, it's like uh, perhaps without wishing to speak for him like I think it's because it's like where he's All got, to, got to create what the Howling Hogs beers were he still feels comfortable experimenting in that respect in that kind of experimental kitchen I presume like. he knows the kit doesn't he uh, yeah. the, the, he, the kit is his to yeah, a certain degree well, as, a, as another kind of interesting point like London's beer history the kit that uh, he's using down there was originally like a little like pilot kit from uh, Camden Town um, from the horseshoe pub days when Jasper was brewing in the basement under oh there. wow so it's all kind of connected to that um, brew kit never quite dies does it no, no it just keeps getting passed on yeah <laughs> I mean they're immortal in a way that we as people are not <laughs> uh, they can continue to be used again and again so there's a it's quite cool to have that kind of generational aspect to London beer and be able to have things that can be passed on yeah, because uh, Partizan started with Colonel Kit, didn't it? Colonel yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, it's a story I've heard a few times before, and it's probably happened more times than I'm aware of. Yeah, there's still a there's still a blog post I need to publish on. I've got a great little story about um, that kit, basically, and a particular a particular tank from that piece of kit, which has travelled quite a long way uh, and had quite a history okay well now that it, we've talked about it you probably have to get a move on now Chris. <laughs> I know you, you I know. put a bit, a bit more was, pressure on yourself that, then. that was me that was me forcing myself to do it <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to get that done yeah. this weekend get on with it <laughs> <laughs> so when did um, Bruin move from here to the, the, the tank bar so um, Bruin had started here I think not long after Cox Avenue had been reopened, so I would say probably around 2012, 2013. And then we, the tank bar and the brewery there out in Hackney Wick uh, was opened and operational in 2015. Um, 
and by that time obviously the ambitions of what we were trying to do had been kind of figured out and we realised that once again Pete had figured out that there was a, not just an opportunity but a demand for a certain kind of experience that wasn't being fulfilled in London so he'd found great pubs turned them into pubs which were the essence of what pubs are yeah. um, he'd managed to create you know, a brewery in the basement of a pub and recreate the idea of what a brew pub could be in London and then for him the next step would be like okay how do we expand that idea uh, into something even larger uh, which meant turning the brewery itself into a bar and not just as a tap room but as something from which you can serve people beer from that equipment in the freshest possible form. Well I was going to say I mean we, we talk about beer from the source Yeah. you know that is about as close as I can get to no. almost being in the tank yeah I mean unless you just like basically snuck into the brewery <laughs> just started opening valves that's well, there's an idea <laughs> <laughs> probably opened the wrong one which had, had was nowhere near ready in the constant <laughs> yeah. search for freshness yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah but it's not even ready Martin it doesn't matter it's fresh yeah. <laughs> I yeah. want it now yeah so I, I think again just to Describe to our, to our listeners because it's it, it's quite difficult on an audio podcast to, to really put into words what what the scene is here. It's again very old fashioned type bar. The, good the, night, the, sweetheart. It puts me in, remi- in mind of yes, the, the, yeah, it's good chat. If, if anyone's yeah. watched that program from a few years ago with Nicholas Lindhurst, with the way the bar is set up, yeah. cor- it's a corner street pub, tiling on the outside, t- some tiling on the inside, lots of deep brown wood. Yeah, wooden benches, ninety-degree angle bar. The, the, that's the predominant feature as well. Yeah, in, yeah. that's what you say. You walk it's, in and it's the bar. But that's how it's, it's a designed. big L-shaped Look bar. Look at the, yeah. the, the way that front door is. The first yeah. thing you can see when you come in is all the bar in one go. It's, it's designed so that that's the first thing you see and that's the first, first yeah. thing you go to. Because yeah. where do you hand over your money? Right there at the bar. Yeah. yeah. So we are directing you from the door to the bar, and you can see, and the, you know variety has changed obviously over the years and stuff yeah and we've got cracking variety in here. I mean we've got what eight keg taps half a dozen to eight cask and uh, another four or five ciders as well yeah, yeah. again very similar and very reminiscent of the Southampton South Arms, Arms yeah. yeah yeah it's basically like I said it's a kind of a sequel in a way it's just kind of expanding upon the same idea but fitting it into a different space yeah and it is a different space still got a, got a piano though yeah Got to keep a, you've got to keep a piano in there. I'm surprised we haven't got a piano in the tank bar, to be honest. It's kind, of, it's kind of a recurring theme. There, there's still time. <laughs> but, but even on a on a Monday afternoon in January, I, I mean, it's it's not empty, is it? We've got nope. there's there's a few couples sitting around. There's a there's a group of people, and then there's a few people on their own, just enjoying a, a fairly quiet Monday afternoon pint. Yeah, traveling. Having done, this is our second pub for a Monday afternoon. I can quite see the virtues of Monday afternoon going out for a bit of a wander. Oh, afternoon drinking it's bliss, could, isn't could it? be the thing it's of twenty twenty. Yeah, it's bliss. Like forget about af- forget afternoon. about your Thursday or Friday. Yeah, Monday yeah. afternoon. Yeah, but that lends itself quite nicely to the, uh, the, the first question that we're going to discuss with Chris. Opinions, 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 opinions. So this was one of the polls that we did a while back, uh, and this, this this one was, uh, where do you feel the most comfortable having a beer on your own? Uh, and the options were pub or tap room, uh, 383 votes, 61% of people going for the pub. And I feel like that 61% of people are probably in here right now, with, with, with <laughs> us as well, just sitting, just sitting having, a, having a pint on their own. Um, 
let's say some of our views on this. Well, Chris, do you have any strong feelings one way or the other? Pub versus tap room? It's interesting, isn't it? Um, I think the uh, coming from the kind of uh, the privileged, uh, somewhat privileged position of like living uh, in London, having and having an abundance of like quality tap rooms and pubs like available to me. Uh, if I had to choose where I was going to go for that kind of moment of you know secluded contemplation over a pint, it would probably be very much somewhere like the Southampton Arms or here. So a, a pub, although I suppose arguably this place can be classed as a pub and a tap room. Yeah, yeah. In, in essence, yeah. Um, I think that's kind of a, well, I think that's maybe based upon people's idea of like comfort. Um, you might not, if you, uh, if you phrase that question differently and said, it's 8pm, where would you go for a, <laughs> a quiet drink? Like, might not necessarily be in the same frame of mind to go into a busy, busier version of one of these places. I think I think that's a valid point. I mean, I've been in there a few times towards the end of the week. Caught it, it can either the wrong time or the right time, depending on your point of view. When it's been really, really busy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a very it's a very social pub. Like the the nature of these kind of corner pubs is that they fill with people in a very natural kind of way. And like coming here in a busy period, it feels like there's hundreds of people in here, but just because of the nature and the shape yeah. of the space. Um, but I guess for me, but also because I've worked in beer and worked at breweries and like done actual a lot of my work like sat in tap rooms and you know places of that nature. Like those places feel kind of comfortable to me as places where yeah. I can like concentrate and or relax. Um, we would talk. We talked a little bit earlier between between recording stuff about. Uh, the Colonel's new tap room. Um, if I was to pick uh, a tap room that I think I would be most comfortable in saying for relaxing for that purpose, the Colonel's new tap room would definitely be the one that I would choose purely because of the way they designed that space, putting sound dampening stuff in there. You could be in there with 50 other people and feel like you'd still have very much your own kind of like space. You still have your own zone. Yeah. Yeah. I quite like the sound though, Ian, you're right, we were talking about it and it's definitely on the bucket list for Steve and myself in 2020 to make, I say a visit, maybe more than one visit, who knows. I th- yeah, I think there's definitely a visit <laughs> happening. Um, I, say, I think for me, I think you made the point, is like maybe it depends on the time of day when I'd feel comfortable. Um, there are times when like, I could quite happily see myself coming into where we are now, the Cock Tavern, of an afternoon, for a couple of hours. Well, I actually don't really want to be bothered by anyone, whether that be I'm on my phone or reading or just looking out the window. So it's quite a nice spot here, there's a lot going on, a lot of life walking past and driving past this window. Um, but equally, there are times when you can get to a tap room and find it to be really quiet and you think, actually, this is quite nice. But then you can have a chat with someone behind the bar as well yeah. because I think, I'm not saying this is the case, the pubs we've been into today, but for, for a lot of places, you all start to get a bit of that interaction with the people at a tap room. They're, they're either involved in the brewing or they're very much invested in the company. Sure. You start can have those kind of one-to-one conversations when it's nice and quiet as well. Yeah, and uh, I think that's like that's a, that's one of the most important things about those kind of spaces that they are the they operate as the showroom and the front door of what the brewery is. Yeah. That was that was certainly the biggest appeal of them to me. Somebody getting interested in beer at that time when these places were opening up in London was like. 
we're now in a, in a place where these businesses are not shuttered factory doors. They are open doors with the, the people who make the products right there and you can have that, that access, that transparency. And you can see the stuff which yeah. has been used and utilised to produce the beer you're drinking. You yeah. can see the shiny. You can see the shiny yeah, in the background. You, the you might even smell some of it going on in the background as well. Yeah. It adds to the whole uh, effect it has on you, doesn't it? I think it's had like a huge effect on the way that people have become interested in beer now. Like if you're, like for a lot of people, these breweries have opened tap rooms in places where they may not have been uh, pubs or bars with really great beer before. And they've acted as this kind of amazing, like new kind of entry point for people to see a quality beer selection, but at the same time be able to talk to people who are actively involved in it. I think that's had a huge difference and probably massively increased the number of people who have not just got interested in beer but stayed interested in beer because they've had that amazing first kind of interaction with it. Yeah, and again, first impressions. Yeah. But people yeah. remember first impressions, don't they? Even if you can't quite remember what made up the first impression. Yeah. you can still take it away with you whether it be a positive or negative experience yeah. I think I think for me it's very much about uh, I suppose the kind of experience you're looking for at that time so I'm, I'm quite comfortable to go and sit in a pub on my own for an afternoon and enjoy a pint if it's in, you know somewhere somewhere welcoming somewhere I know I'm quite happy to and again you know strike up a bit of a conversation with staff behind the bar but if I'm looking for something specific, you know, if I'm looking for a specific brewery and I want to try a lot of their beers, then, then obviously I'm going to head to, to the tap room because that's, that's the space where I'm going to be able to get to try their beers as, as, as fresh as possible. Well, that sort of takes you back to your Leeds days. Yeah. You'd, you'd had the Leeds experience, which is the pubs, but you would take yourself 20 minutes up, up the road by train to Huddersfield for your Magic Rock. Well, I'd go and sit in Magic, I'd quite happily go and sit in Magic Rock for an evening. Yeah. You weren't going with anyone else, were you? No. But you'd quite happily be there. Don't know, Tuesday, Wednesday evening, chill out, drink yeah. Cannibal, because it comes in pints there. Apparently it doesn't do anything <laughs> else. Yeah. Uh, maybe sample St. Kells, get the train back, but, and you may have had the chance to do a bit of a pub thing as well. So you sort of strike both. They can, they can go hand in hand. Yeah, I, I think so. But like, like I say, increasingly it's, it's about, I suppose it's about how welcoming the environment is. And, you know, you can go... Equally, you can go into some pubs and some tap rooms and, and not have a particularly welcoming environment. Yeah. But the flip side of that is there are those that excel at, at that, and you, you know, particularly those that have got good bar staff. That you, you know, maybe sometimes you have that look on your face where you're not quite sure what you want, and the bar staff will kind of guide you a little bit. They ask you what you're looking for, yeah. and that that that's sort yeah. Of thing. They'll, they'll, they'll spot that yeah. maybe a little bit that been used look you might have on your face yeah, yeah. when you first rocked up and you're still not sure what this particular brewery offers yeah so I think that, that again that will put you in that nice and relaxed frame of mind oh these are people who are just nice and helpful offer a taste oh would you like to taste you know one or two of the beers you know strike up a conversation straight away then don't you yeah I, I, I mean I always thought with, with this particular question I always thought I'd be in the taproom category but actually increasingly I think I'm in the pub category now and I think I think that's largely down to you know in, in, in the past year obviously I've become a regular at the Vic now and, and that's that that's your you know your almost typical welcome that you want when you walk into that place yeah. is, is that you know you're gonna get a smile and a good welcome off the bar staff and you know you, that they're gonna guide you towards what you want to drink. And even the ones that don't like you Steve. Even the ones that don't <laughs> like you. but and, and and then 
then you're comfortable in that environment for a few hours. Yes, yeah. you, you'll stay. Yeah, I mean it's just good practice, isn't it? I mean, yeah. let's, let's be honest. I think that's, that's interesting. The thing that we all keep coming up with is like not just like an atmosphere, but like that welcome. That's so important. Like that first point like, of it doesn't, it doesn't matter whether what kind of pub or it is or not. Like I've been in many pubs where there was absolutely no great beer whatsoever, but you had an amazing welcome. And yeah, you know what? I'm going to save us some beers because yeah. these people are so nice. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's that what keeps you. It does yeah. make a difference. That is what keeps you coming Equally, back. Equally, I've been to bars and tap rooms which have an amazing selection and couldn't wait to leave. Well, that, yeah. that happened to, to us uh, on the Crimbo Crawl when we went into Beatniks. We, we got a particularly frosty reception from the, the, the server behind the bar and consequently I then had one beer and left because I wanted to go and get, go and get some food as well. But had maybe that reception not been quite so frosty, I might have stayed for a bit longer. She probably did you a favour then. I think she probably did do me a favour actually. <laughs> I, I, I did need to eat at that time. Um, let's see what some of the listeners have been saying on this one. So Sarah Pantry at uh, Angie Gel UK makes no difference to me as long as the beer is decent. And we had a lot of similar comments to that. Um, so from at John Mather 72, uh, from Joey Hill at Multiplex Rank, from The Brig at Greyhound One, from Simon Webster at Bees Boy, and from John at Beer in the Suburbs. So a lot of people just, I suppose, echoing uh, a little bit of what we're saying there. If it's, if it's good beer, you're, you're more likely to stay for a bit. Or likely to stay. Yeah, well, yeah. These people are definitely more likely to stay. I mean, that's, that's, that's what they're looking yeah. for. I think, I think what we've come to is it's not necessarily about the beer, it's about a whole experience, yeah. isn't it? Um, Ronnie Bean at Ronnie Bean, um, the stripped down corner of a freezing brewery vibe of many tap rooms puts me off. Pubs every time. And again, similar comments from Owen Frankish at Evil Brainfish and James at Gammon Baron. And again, that, there were, I think there was other similar comments on that sort of vein, wasn't it? That's About a cold corner of an industrial estate in yeah. the middle of winter where you're surrounded by cliques. And, and people that aren't really willing to talk isn't yeah. the most welcoming of environments. No, exactly. You know, not everyone wants to sit on pallets. No, not, not all the time. Um, from Bay Beer Reviews at Bay Beer Reviews, and also similar from Jake at Ake Penny ninety one. For me, it's the time of day that matters. Similar to what you were saying there, Steve, as well. Not what and you, Chris. Not what time type of venue it is. We'll happily have a solo sup anywhere during the day but will generally avoid it during the evening. It's interesting. Yeah. So there's like a time of day when you want to yeah. have the solo. I suppose I can get that. I tend to do my solo drinking would be during the light. Yeah. During the daytime would it be, be generally. Um, from Brown's Beer Blog, at Brown's Beer Blog. I don't mind either. I'll have a few down my local. I've recently had an early afternoon in Manchester. I've seen loads of tap rooms on my own. Super quiet and chilled. Perfect with a few books to read. Yeah, I suppose it's what you're looking for. Yeah, isn't, exactly. Isn't it? And also, yeah. sometimes you can go to a tap room and you, and if you are sitting there reading a book, people probably won't disturb you. Yeah, uh, I think that's, that's completely fair. It very much depends on what, just uh, like we were saying, what that, you know, having a welcoming experience, sometimes it depends what that welcome constitutes for some people going into somewhere that's as quiet as a church is exactly what they're looking for. Yeah, it's the welcome they want <laughs> and that's at that like, time. Oh, that's exactly what the welcome is. They just want somebody to nod at them and say, hi, that's yeah. it, and that's enough. They're like, brilliant. We can just like sit and chill out. Yeah. Some people might find uh, a very deeply social kind of interaction-based place a little bit too intense. That's yeah, not really it, fair enough. it doesn't suit everyone's personality, does yeah. it? Yeah. 
Joe Krushank at AB Bridge Joe. Uh, really depends on the pub. I find tap rooms generally have more passionate staff, which leads me to be feel more comfortable rather than a pub with staff that don't want to be there. Overall, though, it really depends on the establishment. I've had good and bad experiences at both. I think, I think we, we, could, we could probably all say that. Probably yeah, that. that's a good summary. Yeah, <laughs> probably what yeah. That is a good summary. Um, then from the Owl Lady at the Owl Lady, and also again very similar from Rob Edwards at Rob Edwards 90, pub without a doubt. Tap rooms are practical, clinical places to indulge in beer geekery and seek out new brews, but they can't possibly compete with the homely atmosphere of a cosy local, even if said local doesn't serve notable beer. People and, uh, people and atmosphere wins every time. Doesn't win every time for me. No, but it, it can be a massive contributing yes. factor. Yes, they, oh yeah, definitely, but it won't win every time. Oh, I mean, I, yeah. I know I've actively left the pub because a group I person has been annoying me with with their overly loud views or opinions on a range of subjects. So, yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> it's, it's something I, didn't realize, to, I didn't realise it was that bad. It's, it's something I'm trying to be a little bit more patient with this year, mate. You know, it's just not walking off and leaving you. you know, we, keep, we keep having this thing about me just wandering off. It's got nothing to do with the beer, it's just I've had enough of you. Ah, so that's all becoming clear. It's all becoming clear. And the, the, the final comment on this uh, is from Chris Elston at Elston's Beer Blog. I've visited more tap rooms on my own than I have pubs, but similarly happy in either. I think that's a great point to finish on, isn't it? Really? Yeah. Just about sums it up. I mean, so so far today we've been in in, in two pubs, haven't we? Yeah. And, and the third part of our journey will, will take us to a taproom experience, uh, quite a unique one in in, in the tank bar. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how we feel about the vibe and how that vibe around us has changed. Yeah, definitely. And it's all about contrast and compare. Yeah, absolutely. On that note. We've finished the... Uh, finished the, the old London Porter. Yeah. Um, any final thoughts on the beer? No change. I could easily sink a few. Yeah, I'm, I'm very, very happy with our taste. Yeah, I bet you are. I mean, so we, we've all tried it on a keg, weren't it? Yes. Yeah. And can. Can as well. Oh, well, yeah. And loved it then. But my overriding feeling was, really want to sample this on cast to see what, what it does. And it, it has softened it out. It's got that little bit of balance, and like I said the cellar temperature is brilliant. Yeah. Conditioning as well. It I just, just want to say, perfectly really good. Yeah. 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 yeah, even for me, it's not served through a spark run. The conditioning on that was perfect. <laughs> well, there we go. I could tell it as, it's got to be taken as a win. That <laughs> I one. I know, right? Well, if you are a pub with a sparkling, you do want to over the casts are still available. If you, want to order any, so. <laughs> you can get in touch with Chris at Howling Hops. <laughs> yeah. I'll hook you up. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, probably time to move on again then. Number three, Howling Hops Tank Bar, the culmination of our Monday afternoon in our triannuary special. Monday afternoon evening now, yeah. Uh, well, just because it's dark. I still like to call it this afternoon, <laughs> otherwise it feels too late. It feels too late. Um, we've, already, we've already got a beer in hand. Uh, well, I've, I've got a beer in hand. Chris has got a beer in hand. You've almost finished all, Steve. Sorry, I was a bit thirsty. So this is the uh, Bohemian Pills. So this is Howling Pills, uh, our bohemian lager that we brewed here since the tank bar opened back in 2015. And what? we've just brought back as like a sort of limited edition oh. lager for us. Limited edition? Okay. Like a limited and, edition. And, and I feel like it's been served in a limited edition glassware as well. <laughs> or, 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 or recently retired glassware. But we can come to that later on. Indeed. Um, yeah. What do we think of it? 
I think it's really refreshing. It's uh, just um, enough floral, sort of bready notes going on, a um, little bit of a, a sharp citrus hit, and then this beautiful sort of balanced bitterness to finish it off. That's really crisp. On the I'd agree with all that, apart from the bready bit. It's not getting the. I'm not, I haven't got the bready bit, but I like that. I like. I don't like the bread. You're not a fan of the breadiness, are no, you? No, no. I don't understand why <laughs> breadiness and pills is there. But getting a little bit of like um, almost like a lemon sherbet. Oh, I'm, I wouldn't it. say I'm getting that. But so, but that, but I mean, for the benefit of our listeners, you know, the things we do for this, we've been out in the rain, out in the cold, delayed trains, cancelled trains, just to get here. Yep. So this was the perfect beer after all of that. It was. It was the first first beer that we needed when yeah. we got here. Yeah. In fact, we didn't really, we didn't actually look that hard, did we? No, we just both went I mean, that. Uh, there's, ten, <laughs> yeah. there's ten tanks. I think only one of them isn't pouring, and we just went pills. Yeah. So thank you very much, Chris. Thank you very much for your, your generosity. But right, so this is we've, we've we've done Southampton Arms. We've done the Cock Tavern. Yeah. Tank bar. Talk us through the idea of a. Uh, serving us beers from a tank in a warehouse yeah well so mentioned earlier the Howling Hobbs Brewery as was in the Cox Haven was all about experimenting with beers and being able to serve them as fresh as possible it was like a, a reinvention of like the brew pub and a beautiful old Victorian pub that just needed new and interesting beers to kind of fit the current London beer climate and after over 100 beers have been brewed there we decided that the next logical step was like expanding again the idea of what we could do um, so in this case it meant creating a brewery uh, as big as we could afford with tanks that were serving tank fresh beer uh, in a taproom setting but perhaps not exactly like a taproom it's still a bit of a leap though isn't it because we were lucky enough before we left the cock tavern to have a little look around the the original brew kit uh, but it's still being used in the cock tavern and there's you know that that to this is just yeah. you know light years apart isn't it because that 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 basically was in if, if you can imagine the cellar of a pub somehow you'd managed to squeeze a brewery into that yeah and a functional brewery yeah. at, at that And as some well. storage space as well. Yeah, and, and also a barrel yeah. for a little bit of cheeky barrel aging <laughs> yeah. as, as well. We, which we did notice. Yeah, it's the most amazing use of space I've ever seen. Yeah, I said it's very similar to what I experienced at the North Riding Pub last yeah. year in Scarborough. Very much maxing out. Again, low ceiling, not much space. You know, if, if you were trying to clean those out and you... Uh, anything around that 5.11 upwards, you're going to be struggling to do anything substantial. Yeah. So, so it's Pete the owner, isn't it? Is it? Yeah. There's still a leap. So what made him think, I know what we need to do. We need, we need to build these great big tanks and put the freshest beer in there and serve it as fresh as possible. How, what made him think that would work? I think it's just like, uh, again, trying to capture the uniqueness of what the Southampton Arms and the Cog Tavern already had going for them, but then kind of expanding that to the next level. Whereas before, with both those pubs, they were, you know, they they were almost like those kind of like Master Chef dishes, which are like those refined versions of like classic kind of ideas. Um, 
which were all about uh, refined versions of like British drinking culture, stripping them back to what they're all about and celebrating what they are. And I think with the Tang Bar, the leap was making that kind of connection between not just like English or British drinking culture, but expanding that to a more kind of European kind of concepts. Like in here, like say we've got 10 tanks of beer like behind us and we've got these long benches. It's much more reminiscent of something that's uh, German or Czech drinking culture. But with it, we've brought the same kind of like modern, uh, modern beers that we've seen come to the fore in the last like five to ten years of like British drinking culture. Oh, it's definitely got modern beer styles, but I also get your uh, comparison to like the German and Prague beer halls, mm-hmm. that sort of space, and also some of the styles of beers that you do here as well. For sure, lend yeah. themselves to that European beer culture, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. So like the the beer that we're drinking now, Howling Pills, um, which was you know a beer that we brewed very you know since the first time they were pouring beer here at the at Sankar was all about capturing that again like sessionable, drinkable beer culture that we have so much in common with in Europe. Um, the best beers in the world ultimately are the ones that you want to drink the most of at the end of the day. They might be strong, they might be sessionable, they might be hoppy, they might not be, but they are drinkable. And it's about, if you if you create the environment in which you want to drink these beers, it ultimately influences the kind of beers that you want to brew. Oh, that's good. Because again, that's a bit like the German beer halls, the beer gardens that they have as well. Again, that communal space. Oh, yeah, exactly. Sorry, do you mind if we sit here at the end? There's already six people on the table, another two people squeeze on the end. Conversation may or may not ensue, but you can still hear the hubbub going on around you, can't you? Yeah, it's, it's basically just like a slightly different format of the similar kind of thing that I've just shown you guys in Southampton Arms, the Cog Tavern. Like, you've got that very, like, Southampton Arms is like a, you know, that kind of bowling alley <laughs> of uh, yeah. space where you've got that nice long bar, you've got that very tidy sort of like cozy kind of environment, you've got this open fire, this piano, it's a very social drinking kind of like space. Uh, the Cox Salmon is just like a larger version of that. You've got this you know, L-shaped bar, it's it's a very, again a very like social drinking environment that's just full of people enjoying different kinds of beer all together in one place and here we've just kind of like maybe like open our minds a little bit in terms of what that kind of beer culture really means and like what if we can drink all of these kind of beers together but in a slightly different shape uh, and in this case it means having the brewery just behind the bar in a way <laughs> that we I guess with the Cog Tavern it was just below <laughs> but in this case it's directly behind the tanks you're getting the beer served from I still I mean it's for anyone who hasn't been here, and I'm sure a lot of people have seen pictures, it's a fantastic view when you first come through the double doors. Mm. Oh yeah, because you've got this, this this open space and, and, and all these sort of like seated areas that you can sit at. And then you've got those 10 tanks yeah. just staring at you directly. And it's, it's, it's almost like 
the minute you walk in, as you walk towards the bar, you're trying to decide where am I starting? Yeah. Which is going to be the first beer that I no. that, that I have? Here. I have I have ten choices because you can't I help but miss it. You you, boy, you, can't, yeah. you can't miss yeah. it. You, I know you I've got to, ten choices yeah. because they, they've numbered them as well. Yeah. I've got I've got numbers I can look at. I've got pictures, words, and silver. So. In, in terms of the setup here, the, the, the beer is brewed directly into the tanks, and then does it does it do these act as FVs as well, or, or does that sit behind those? So the FVs sit behind the serving tanks. Um, so a little bit like we were saying earlier in the Cock Tavern, where we had serving tanks built into what the sort of like microbrewery set yeah. was in the basement there. This is an expansion of that idea. So we've got. FVs behind the serving tanks and the brewery itself behind those. Oh, I thought it was um, fresh. Oh, well, it still is fresh. Surely it comes oh. from the. Surely it's brewed. It goes into the FV and then when it's ready, it comes straight into the serving. Yeah, tank. but it's yeah, like ours. Well, the... <laughs> so the thing so here you is, you just can't please some people. Chris, <laughs> right? I, 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 I saw the desperation in your eyes at that moment where he said that, and it's honestly, some people are just never happy. I know. I've been spending so much time with you, Steve. <laughs> So I guess for a lot of people, the idea of a tank bar is maybe like it's an alien concept or it doesn't really mean anything in and of itself. But like our definition of a tank bar is very much like it would be anywhere else in like say in Czechia or in Germany where you're basically transferring beer directly from uh, the FVs into serving tanks. That beer is never never remotely touched oxygen and you're getting the freshest possible version of that beer served in a way where you get the entire variety of what the brewery is able to produce uh, at the fullest possible. So is this different, uh, obviously we do see tank beers in in pubs now, so Meantime and Pilsner and Budvar, I think are the three that I've seen in London. How does that differ? I like the fact they, they actually commute them along somewhere, but do they get in touch with oxygen at all? Yeah, so basically the, I guess the major difference is that the Meantime and Pilsner Quell and Budvar were all using a similar kind of system where they purchase tanks, uh, which are effectively almost like giant key kegs. They've got like a, basically a, a plastic bag inside those tanks. Are they really? Which have been filled with beer. So we could have Budvar, right? Great British Beer Festival. <laughs> Essentially, yeah. yeah. By Cameron's doctrine, you entirely could. Sorry, um, divergent there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. These, know, I'm, I'm these, about, these I'm tanks about. are these tanks are purchased with the purpose of like having them filled within some kind of like plastic bag within that tank, and then they are shipped directly from wherever that brewery is um, to the bar where they need to be. They're hooked up, but they are essentially giant key kegs. And just as with any kind of kegging process or bottling process or canning process, there is always going to be a certain amount of oxygen pickup. The only difference here is that we are wrapping those beers directly into tank without them touching any so kind of oxygen. No oxygen at all. No. So the t- first time it gets oxygen is when it's poured into my glass. Yeah, if, I mean, like we we ac- we actually end up having the you know air quotes problem of having beers which are so fresh that once we rack them into tank we're like actually these are actually a little bit fresher than what the <laughs> cans and kegs might yeah. taste like so there is 
we always, within the brewery we have this kind of nerdy fascination with what the the beers themselves taste like across those different formats. We got to try you know cask version of New Orleans and Porter earlier, yeah. which we all very much enjoyed. But we were all like head over heels in love with like the version of New Orleans and Porter that we had on tank and then we tried tried in cans and we tried in kegs. And like Well as we're, we're as we're yeah. Yeah, and we Sorry. also got to try cask versions of our cool beers like yeah. Pale XX and Tropical Deluxe Cellar and Southampton Arms and like we're all fascinated with dispense and uh, that I think that that dedication to how you serve beer whether it's cask or keg or tank or can or whatever like that's something that we're fascinated with as a brewery because that is within our DNA as a company like we started out as a pub and we evolved into a pub with a brewery and then we evolved into a brewery that has pubs and so in that way we've become obsessed with how people enjoy our beer and what kind of beers we want to produce in order to, for those people to enjoy them in those different formats well this is a good start it's, it's, a, fan- it's a fantastic start I just, I just want to come back to the, the plastic bag comment so yeah. Are, are they in your tanks as well, or uh, your, these, your tanks these, are free these, of the plastic these, uh, bags? No, these are just stainless steel tanks that like beer gets racked into. Yeah. and they don't touch anything else whatsoever. So um, no plastic, no oxygen. Yeah, just these, as as fresh as intended. Yeah, exactly. And is this still, in terms of the UK beer scene, this is still fairly unique, isn't it? In, yeah, in I think there's a maybe tank bar. Yeah, there's maybe maybe one or two other places that have tried to replicate um, the process, um, but as far as we know, we're we're still the only place that produces these kind of beers in this kind of format and this kind of variety across like ten tanks. Well, I have to admit, I'm quite surprised because, like I say, you opened in 2015. Mm. That's the f- same time I first came down was 2015. I'm surprised that no one else has sort of done something it's similar. Kind of copied it, basically. Maybe, yeah. maybe not in London, but you know, Manchester, Leeds, Newcastle, maybe Edinburgh, somewhere like that. But you know, you, you look at a model, you think, you know, I would say even as a piece of artwork, it's that whole visual thing, isn't it? Yeah. Again, the minute you walk through the doors of this place, you, your eyes are instantly drawn to the tanks. Sure. Yeah. And and therefore the beer. So I'm so desperately trying to look at you two and my notes, and all the while I want to look it's, to my it's left. It's just there, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it's it's it's, it's there. Intense. Imagine imagine working here. Like I, I work no, at no, the desk, I would, like no, over I can't here. Work. I wouldn't like, get to work here. Simple. <laughs> like we're sat over there, like you know, Friday, and it gets to like four o'clock, and someone's like, "Oh, do you, want, you guys want to get some beers?" And I'm like, for God's sake, yes! yes. Like, Jesus yeah, Christ! I've been staring at it. I've been sitting here since Monday. Yeah. Uh, it's, it is a, it's a wonderful spot. It is a really nice spot. I mean, we're in a, you know, bit of a more cold, wet, miserable day. But come here during the summertime and it's nice and busy outside as well. Nice little courtyard area. Nice and handy for the station. It's a perfect spot. Yeah, I think for, for me it goes, like, when I, I only started working here like six, seven months ago. And before then, whenever I came here, I was similarly, like, overwhelmed by like walking through this door and like seeing all these tanks here and then like just as just as you would like when we were at the Cog Tavern earlier or the Southampton Arms you want to walk up and down the bar to see the kind of like breadth of kind of like yeah. beers are on offer and here like you look at it and it's like 
it's like a <laughs> it's like a bar like drawn up in scale like although those those like 10 different offerings are just like kind of drawn larger than you would have like normally seen it's like Pete went incremental from Southampton Arms to Cock Tavern and then did a, did a bit of a jump yeah so yeah. incremental to start off with and then went right I know what works now or at least I think I know what works I'm going to give this a shot see what happens I'm going to scale up but I, I think it's, visually I can get what you're saying is that there is a direct link yeah the, I think like it, it really comes down to for us like the like the kind of base that we produce and like that that DNA that family tree of what we are as a company like what comes back to the pubs where we started and how much people enjoy balanced drinkable beers whatever kind of style they are and that always continues to inform what we do and how we operate as a company I mean we've we're very blessed in many ways now like it's it's incredibly incredibly difficult for breweries to begin operating in this kind of environment that is not just saturated but so diverse um i think i feel way more comfortable and like safe as an employee working for a brewery that has this pub background and they have this sustainable approach to operations and how you know everything works also know your punter yeah to I mean, have, have kept those two pubs going as well where exactly. they are offering a diverse range of beers which won't be for everyone's liking anyway mm. no, no macro you can't turn up and say I'll have a pint of carne pint of stella oh damn can't get over those kind of a Guinness and then turn to confidence to do this as well I'm quite I'm impressed by that step up yeah, there's, there's, there's thought gone into it, isn't yeah. there? And there's not just thought, but it's passion as well. And it's it's, a, it's an acknowledgement of this is what I'm involved in and this is how I want it to evolve. See, I'm going to diverge from it. The environment I work in now in the financial industry, we're always talking about innovation, okay? And about taking that next step, thinking forward, looking forward. This is like the epitome of that. So you go from the Southampton Arms to the Cock Tavern, Instead of saying I'm going to do the next incremental step, yeah. or two or three incremental steps, they're taking a leap. It's still, I think it's still a leap, because it's still pretty much unique for the UK market. So this is actually, for me, it's like innovation actually working and working well. But the setup here as well also allows you to stay with the game and maybe ahead of the game a little bit as well, because you've, you've got your tanks. Yeah. You, can, you can ferment beer straight into those tanks when it's ready and literally all you're doing is putting a different label on, on that tank when it's ready to go and even the, the design of the labels, they're just big versions of your can labels, aren't they? That, yeah, exactly. That you yeah. must get printed up to put on the front of the tanks. Yeah, it's a, it's a big difference to me, like being in Brew by Numbers working for what I would call the label dungeon of like creating every single label from scratch. like. For each individual beer this is like yeah obviously it's working with like label artists and like getting really good artwork put together that reflects you know the kind of beers that we're creating but um yeah it's it's a very very different kind of like brewing operational environment yeah uh, to anywhere else that i've worked although chris still before. says sells his uh, label dungeon photos on ebay for anyone who, <laughs> anyone who's interested <laughs> And, and there's, there's another classic Chris phrase there as well, <laughs> label dungeon. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, this, this place is, it, it, it's a great vibe, it's great atmosphere. And from where I'm sitting, obviously, I, I can see the tanks 
Um, and I can also spy a number of cheeky little barrels hiding in the corner. Indeed. As, as well out yeah, there. Yeah. So you've, you've obviously yeah. got a bit of barrel aging going on here. Sure. As, as well as the, the, the fresh and core and special and regular stuff that you've got coming through your tanks. You've also got these beers hiding away in the corner that will appear at a later date. Yeah, so these were these were also barrels that we used for our most recent barrel age releases, which were uh, hopefully, as some people might have tried, Yuki and Wellshot. Um, most of which were cans, some of which also went into kegs. Uh, we did a tiny little number of like pen-sized casts for like events as well. Um, these beers were different base imperial stouts different recipes, some of which went into Japanese whiskey barrels, some of which went into bourbon barrels. Um, in the past month, we've then brewed a new big stout that we want to use for the, the similar kind of purpose. And the aim is to, again, use these uh, barrels and potentially blending them together to try and find that perfect mix. So is that the same barrel as last year you're going to use? So it'll be a yeah, second likely use of that, the same that, barrels, that yeah. barrel? Yeah. Was there a was there a preference? So the so we had a bourbon barrel and a Japanese whiskey barrel. Mm. Was there a preference amongst punters? Yeah, it's uh, from the feedback that we received. Yuki was the one that most people preferred, which wasn't necessarily what I would have expected. I would have expected. Well, basically, Yuki was nine point two percent. Well shot was thirteen percent. Yuki was in the Japanese whiskey barrels and Yuki was named so because it's uh, with that particular character spelling with a horizontal line above the letter U. It's an anglicized version of the Japanese word for courage. The base beer for that particular beer was a clone of the Courage Russian Imperial Stout. Brilliant, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> a little attention to detail. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, whereas the base beer for Wellshot, the bourbon barrel aged though, that one was a much richer, residually sweeter uh, kind of imperial stout. Um, so yeah, I you said difference between those two beers as well. Yeah, so Yuki was 9.2, Wellshot was 13. They were very, you would expect as a kind of as an observer of trends, the, the stronger one, the one that was bourbon barrel aged, would perform best. Yeah. Uh, in the end, it was actually the complexity of Yuki which actually impressed people more. So even though it's that much less ABV, yeah, the complexity of it still held people's interest. Yeah, I think so. That's that's why we decided to create a different base recipe style, which is going to get aged in both of those barrels, and then. I think the the long term plan is that they're going to get blended together to try and find the ideal balance between the two characteristics. Okay, so there'll be a beer. Of, so the same base beer will go into both barrels. Yeah. Then there'll be a bit of blending. Yeah. Will you one. blend all of it, or will there still be some siphoned I, off? Well, I guess we'll see what happens. This is, the, I guess, this is the the fun part of this kind of process that we can create one blend of these things, but we might also have single barrel versions if they. If, you know, if brewers feel they're good enough. I mean, we can come back January next year. Yeah, <laughs> and I mean, redo this whole yeah. thing, yeah, yeah. And, and and do all three of them. We can be your tester panel if you want. Yeah, if you want to come back in we'll, like we'll November. do that. Yeah, you yeah. come back put in November. Out, just yeah. like pull some nails out, that see how it barrels yeah. are tasting. Yeah. You can help us figure it yeah. out. I mean, we'll see. It's a really <laughs> good of us. <laughs> <laughs> Always thinking about others. But, um, I just I just think it's really great that in in the space that you've got because it's not it's not a huge space here. 
certainly in terms of other breweries that I've seen, in, certainly in the UK. It's definitely not a huge brewery space. No, is it? you've, you've no. managed the space well, but it's, it's great that you're, you're, you're producing 10 tanks of fresh, rotating, new and yeah. core beers, but at the same time, 12 that I can see barrels going on in the corner. So you've got this barrel aging thing going on as well. And, and you're balancing the both of those at the same time. Yeah, I mean, it's when we've got no um, intense or kind of complicated like barrel barrel aging project going on. This is this is stuff that we feel is within our grasp. Um, it's not trying to reach out to try and do as much as we can. It's all about just trying to achieve what we think we can, like realistically do, uh, year on year. Um, there are always occasional uh, spin-off barrel age projects in the past there have been other whiskey barrel aged stouts or whiskey barrel aged sours even like you guys got to see like the little kind of brewing project that Tim still has going on in the Cock Tavern and yeah there continue to be ongoing projects in that regard uh, which I think is one of the benefits of being like a brewery this small is that you keep having stuff on the download that you just kind of like yeah. tinker away with um, but for us like yeah barrel, barrel aging like beers is still something that we want to do in a uh, realistic kind of way in the same way that we do everything else I think I think that's so refreshing to hear because sometimes it does feel like there's a, a new brewery appears and, and, and within weeks there's, there's a barrel they're, they're barrel aging and it's like whoa whoa hang on a minute you you suddenly want me to spend upwards of maybe eight nine ten pounds on, well, on a barrel aged beer of sometimes yours more than that as well be, before you've even proved to me that you can nail a core range mm. and and i've become far more hesitant these days to to go in for that because i, I, I want to see a brewery prove itself with brew me a consistent low abv beer that tastes the same every time yeah. when, when you can do that yeah then step it up and then maybe in 9 12 18 months time then give me something barrel aged well, but you've, you've you've got to have kept me for that entire time rather than just going oh here's a here's a six percent ipa and our next beer is a barrel aged imperial cookie monster stout or well, how many like people dived in on marvel's decadence this year or last year, yeah, because they trust what they their output the rest of the time. Yeah, exactly, and I feel like that might be a maybe an ever diminishing number of people who have that kind of level of trust, whereas there are a growing number of people who have a trust in beers which are just one shot and come from nowhere, have a lot of excitement behind them a lot of process and a lot of ingredients to like suggest that it's going to be a great beer but they don't have necessarily have the experience of people like Marvel yeah, or experience and the skill set yeah because you refine your art and, and that's in any role you're taking up whether it be sure. producing something or not like I say it doesn't even have to be a core range maybe it's just a way of doing it so I don't know say Cloudwater don't necessarily have a, cla- a core range mm. Colonel don't have a core range but they have a a core type of beer, but yeah, it, it's it's for all intents and purposes, it's earning your stripes. Yes, it's, it's, it's you've got to you've got to prove that you can brew well. Yeah, I'll Before, buy exactly. I'll buy the ten pound ticket to see you down the local pub 
first of all. <laughs> yeah. But don't expect me to spend £100 on the arena. Exactly. It's, it's, that, it's that band metaphor. Again. Yeah, exactly. Again, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to dive straight into to seeing a new band in an arena. Yeah. Right, so we've all finished the... Uh, the pills that didn't actually take too long did it not for me no i was uh, i was quite thirsty actually oh, you, you, you were actually just holding on to that last bit weren't you i, I was i i hit it pretty hard oh it's, it's got to be said uh, i was two-thirds of the way down mine by the time you two even started so yeah i was uh making the last bit last but it lasted well any final uh, thoughts just uh nothing more to add really i mean it's exactly exactly what you want if you're looking for something that's clean and crisp and refreshing it, it ticks all those boxes i think it's a uh, very drinkable what's it what's the sort of abv again four six four six yeah. four six i mean that's yeah. in nicely in that sessionable range we're actually using easily, the word easily sessionable properly for yeah. once yeah so i i do think that's a it's a lovely pills yeah i mean maybe if it hadn't been for the traveling problems tonight whoever would have gone for that i don't know but I can see that in the summer. And is that is that one been a tank room special, or is that is that heading its way into cans? Or? Uh, kind of both. So it's uh, it's a beer that we brewed here since 2015, um, but like different branding. And after Daskulsh, uh, sort of like regular house dry crispy beer, kind of came to prominence. Uh, Howling Pills has already been out there for about a year or so. Uh, we decided to bring it back because we wanted to bring a greater variety of lager to the tank bar. And so it's got fresh branding, it's going to be in cans and kegs and stuff. It's out here early in the tank bar, it's like a little exclusive to our tank bar customers at the moment. Okay, well, it's very tasty. Very tasty, yeah. yeah. Um, but we have another beer. We do. And so it's definitely our not glasses have magically refilled. Yeah, different yeah. glasses. Yes. <laughs> um, what have we got, Chris? So this is our winter Hefeweizen. Four and a half percent. Amber-coloured wheat beer. Uh, built pretty much in the kind of like... Not just like German Hefeweizen style, but kind of like more specifically in that kind of richer, sweeter, spicier, kind of end of the year, darkest months, something a bit more kind of complex and comforting. Okay, well, uh, well, let's see what we think. Yeah, cheers. Cheers. It's definitely a bit of a fruity spice nose to it. I find sweetness on the nose. Yeah. Um, Still getting a bit of banana chews in the flavour. Despite it being German style, I would call that Belgian-y. It, it, it tastes completely Belgian-y to me. It's, it's, it's got everything that... Oh, really? Because when, when I get the banana chews, I, I default to more the German wheat beer style. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this is um, quite quite heavily inspired by Schneiderweiss's uh, Tap 7, I think, which is not their kind of like... Straightforward wee beer, but more like kind of like richer, more amber-coloured, more richer in body. Because it looks, it, it looks quite thick in the glass, doesn't it? Yeah, it does it's, it's look quite like dark amber colour as well. Yeah, it looks like a full-bodied beer, doesn't it? Yeah. So I, we, uh, myself, sales manager Sean, and um, three's my partner who works for Beercraft, one of our distributors, and our colleague Meg. We all kind of went out. A nice day out, kind of like discussing beers which we think Howling Ops should brew more of. Uh, it was a very 
informative. Uh, <laughs> when you say informative, how many beers did this meeting take place over? Oh, no more than 12, Martin. Good. This is fine. It's so, fine. Uh, if you'd said 13, that would have been just wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was a totally normal afternoon. Yeah. Was that, was that um, a Monday afternoon as well? <laughs> well, it, it was actually a Friday, um, but it could have been. <laughs> it could easily have been a Monday. <laughs> Uh, but in this case, we we were really looking for uh, kind of like interesting styles that we haven't brewed enough of, and that we felt like our brewery could not only produce to a really good standard, but also that people should be more interested in. And a couple of the two the two major things that spun out of that, uh, shall we say, research expedition. Um, research expedition. Were ultimately this beer and New Old London Porter. Definitely, well, so, so two very classic styles. Yeah. In, in terms yeah. of original beer. But also yeah. two very good. So we've spoken a lot about Christmas beers over the years. Yeah. Where people go to the back of the cupboard, throw all the shit in that they haven't used up for the last two years, whereas. The new old London Porter just had all those lovely characteristics that you want to find in a London Porter with that smokiness, roastiness, toastiness, but also drinkability. This feels a little bit more one you would maybe sup a little bit longer. It's in that sessionable range of ABV, but it's definitely a fuller, it's got a fuller mouthfeel and fuller body to it. And it yes. feels like there's a few more flavours to come out as it starts to warm up as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, like, New Old London, as I said earlier, was, was very much uh, something which is a beer that we were trying to explore through the medium of malt and how complex and how rich and how tasty it could be through that particular ingredient, whereas this is, in many ways, a kind of, like, spin-off, uh, to the advice um, that we produced uh, here as very before, which we jokingly call traditional East End Hefeweizen. Um This is kind of like the bigger brother in some ways. Uh, it's that beer. Oh, I can picture that. Yeah, I can definitely picture that. I see. It's, it's, I just think it's got a lot going on. It's got a lot going on. It's really, it's really smooth and creamy as well. Yeah. At, at, at the same time. There's loads of flavour going on in it. There's, there, there is a load going actually, on. Actually, the, the conditioning is actually quite a good, yeah. good, thing, good point yeah. to make because it may not be the conditioning you'd normally expect from a giant kick. No, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's almost cast-like. The yeah. conditioning on it is almost cast-like. Yeah. It's got a really tight head, really thick body, and, and it's, it's everything you'd probably expect in a, in a, in a really well-brewed, really well-looked-after-cast beer. Yeah. yeah, well, this uh, brings me perfectly to another one of the benefits of tank beers, that we have individual, they may be massive, but they are individual tanks, which can be carbonated and temperature-controlled to exactly where we want them to be. So, so you've got 10 tanks. Yeah. You can do each of, the one, each, each of them different temperature different carbonation exactly yeah so attention to detail again yeah absolutely yeah we like when we you know we won't very much enjoy uh, particular beers of ours on cask or keg or can tank but the tank is not a default setting by any means it's that's something which is dialed in very very carefully by the brewers which we think best reflects that particular style uh, and in this case, um, I think this particular beer benefits from 
a similar kind of temperature to what we would be serving uh, the New World London Portrait, where it's cool, not too cold, uh, but also you get that just enough carbonation to carry through the flavours and the complexity, but without so much carbonation that it starts to strip that away. Yeah, the carbonation on here isn't like gassy. No, no, it's, it's a just really enough. soft mouthfeel that carries yeah. you through. Yeah, it's really and nice. I, 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 I was, <laughs> I was personally obviously very excited about this beer because of our research expedition. Of course. Um, secondly, because it has the most incredible label that I think we've ever had, which is this kind of like infinity mirror, <laughs> kind of like. <laughs> yeah, like don't look at that for pattern. too long. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And again, never going to work on an audio podcast, <laughs> no. but I'm, I'm sure we can get a picture of that and put it on Twitter and uh, people can see what people we're talking about. It. Yeah. So obviously we talked a lot about beer here, which brings sure. us quite nicely to our second opinions, really. Opinions, 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 opinions. Which was, um, should brewery tap rooms serve only beer or other options? So we did do this one a little while ago. Uh, we had a total of over 500 votes, 503. So only beer, 19%. Other options, 81%. Chris, what do you think? Well, what, what do you serve here? Yeah. Is, is, I mean, to is be it honest, only beer? Because at the moment, you can only see beer when you come in. Yeah, well, so we kind of, again, it comes back to that... Uh, I think I was saying about best of both worlds. Um, we have 10 tanks of tank fresh beer, so fresh from the brewery here, but we also have a separate bar which also serves wine, cider, spirits, uh, soft drinks uh, adjacent to the main bar, um, which we have always felt is imperative to providing the kind of offering that reflects the area and who we want to serve drinks to. Um, for us it's uh, I guess it's less about what you want to do and let, more about what people are going to want when they walk through Hackney Wick and they're going to come across many different places where they can experience different kind of you know drinking places so you should always be able to offer exactly what people want the best thing you can do is to try to accommodate to that but I appreciate that that's not necessarily what every taproom is able to accommodate. Um, obviously, like I said earlier, I've worked for Brew by Numbers for a long time and <laughs> affording people additional options beyond beer was something that took a while to, you know, sort out beyond soft drinks. You know, was, why would people come to Bermondsey? on a weekend <laughs> and drink anything other the beer but eventually our kind of like offering not just became more accessible but was accessed by more people so we have to accept the beer uh, and places in which you drink it have expanded way beyond pubs now we've now got tap rooms we've got tank bars we've got like all kinds of places in which you're going to go with your friends and your friends might not be into beer which but is but they still yeah, des- yeah. you know they still deserve a high quality offering this is not about just like a token you know thing at the end of the bar that is just for your non beer drinking mates you know? see that's a good point as well 
So there are some places I've been to where it is a token offering. Yeah. We have a bottle, a bottle of white, a bottle of red, or a gin, mm-hmm. as an example of other alcoholic beverages, or maybe one or two soft drinks. The little bar around the corner you've got, I say little, compared to the tank bar, but it is smaller. But there's actually quite a decent range there, as well as having some of the small pack stuff as well. Yeah, and it's, it's not something we take lightly. You know, we, we need to we need to accommodate for people who, quite frankly, give a shit about drinks. Yeah, you know, they as many people who might come in here who might not necessarily care that much. They deserve just as good an experience as somebody who cares as much as you know you or I or Steve or anybody else listening to this yeah. podcast that's about beer. I think if you look at what what we've done today in terms of the heritage of Howling Hops as well, both previous places that we've been to today haven't just served beer. They've had a great selection of ciders. Yep. On which are all from what we've seen through again through hand drinks. But there's always been also been a selection of other drinks as well yeah, as there's been spirits and wines yeah. and, 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 and other options. So I suppose in, in terms of keeping true to your history, you couldn't have come here and gone, right, we're only serving beer now. No, exactly. Because in terms of that brand, people would have expected more than just beer. No, it'd be, it'd be crazy not to try to accommodate for what people ultimately want. Like, you know, let me say that, like, that's one thing, <laughs> you know, that's one thing that... I'd like to think we've been good as a company. Like Pete from the very beginning has figured out what people want, how it wants to be presented to people, and how they should get together. From a business perspective, it would make no sense. No, no. I mean, like now we're we're in a position where that kind of offering is that kind of offering has evolved in and of itself. Like here, we're able to offer like spirits from East London Liquor Company, and like we can do, you know, like draft cider like bag and box like those of a decent quality we can get sodas from square root we can like deal with companies who are take this kind of shit as seriously so as we similar, do about similar beer. sort of ethos yeah you, so it's you just have the option yeah it's just applying that to across your business and from my point of view individually separately of the company like where where would I want to take my friends? Where would I want to take my parents? Where are, where would I want to go with people who don't care about beer? Like, I'd go to somewhere where I think they're going to have a, a good experience, and so can I. Yeah. So we all we all end up happy. Yeah. Well, what's your thinking, Steve? I'm, I'm along the same sort of lines. It's, it's it's why would you why would you run a bar that only exclusively sold one type of product because you're instantly alienating a percentage of people that are coming into that bar and so, so therefore I think it's I think yes your, your focus here is beer that's that's undeniable but you've got options if if people are coming that don't like beer and you, you know we've all been out in large group of friends we've all got friends that aren't beer drinkers but having other options yes, one by one I'm trying to drop them to be honest <laughs> But, but there are still people out there that don't drink beer. Yeah. And, and no matter how great or how varied or how wild you go with beer styles, that they're never they're never going to come round to the well, idea. We both for kids. Of, of drinking. Yeah. So if you came here with George and Archie, I come here with Michael. My son's old enough to drink, but chooses not to. So the option of having, say, some of the nice sodas around the corner 
which is quite happy to fleece me for. So that, again, it means then maybe I'm not staying here for just one, I can stay here for free. Sure. Because he's got something, as well as his mobile communication device, to keep himself amused. He can I, have a nice drink. I just think you're opening up to a much wider audience if you're serving more. Yeah. Because, because actually, what you might get is you might get that one person from within your group go, well, what's that you're drinking there? I like the look of it, I like the smell of it, can I try it? And they might try that beer and, and they might then go on to order that beer. And that may very well become their gateway to many more beers. Yeah, yeah because you sure. haven't closed the gateway. Yeah, but I think, I think and, and I've seen it sort of like in the past year or so where particularly beer festivals, a lot of beer festivals seem to have got quite snobby about this and they're like, no, we're a beer festival. Why would people come to a beer festival if they don't want to drink beer? It's like, well, it's, it's not about the primary person in that group that's coming. Yeah, because the primary it, person's it, on their way anyway. Yeah it's about the other people that they're bringing with them. And if out of that group of, let's say, I don't know, five people, there are two non-beer drinkers, you're not catering for them, then their spend in your event is gonna be zero because they're gonna be ordering water. And also, whatever. the two people who are into the beer are probably leaving earlier. Yeah, so it cater for everyone. It's, it's not hard to do. Yeah, I mean, I was quite I amazed. I really don't think it's hard to I do. I was still quite amazed at the, uh, it was 19%, it still said only beer. What I will say, I will add a little nuance to this. When I go to a tap room, I only ever expect to have the beer from the brewery. Yeah, I find it quite strange when a brewery tap room is selling guest beers yeah. almost. Okay. So, Southampton Arms and the Cock Tavern ha- having other beers, that's fine. Because they're not tap rooms. They're not tap rooms. But if I came to Howling Hops and suddenly you had an extra tap which was someone else's beer, I would find that odd. <laughs> So I, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'd love to be able to have like a tank full of someone else's beer. Yeah, I mean, like, oh yeah, it's like, uh, yeah, oh yeah, I've got like a thousand liters of burden over there. Who gives a shit? Nobody cares. It's fine, or whatever. This would be the shortest um, interview ever with Chris. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, so that that would be my little uh, nuance to it. But the rest of it, I completely agree with you. So, why would you cut off any other options? And yeah. if, but at, the, at the end of that, you've the people who are coming in still don't find something you will maybe not cater to everyone but you want to max out your ability to cater to people surely yeah i think we're in a we're in a position now where we well certainly within the past few years like we've experienced like a massive readjusting of like how this kind of thing works because it was it was very difficult several years ago to even try to accommodate to this many different people and this many different kinds of offerings and like oh, people might come in and like they might want wine they might want cider they might want spirits but you're just a tiny little microbrewery just trying to throw together a tap room on the Friday night and you're just trying to do what needs to get done and that might even be one person who's trying to do that yeah it was exceptionally difficult speaking from experience but we're now in a position where there are more options available and those options that are available are easier to accommodate than they were before which is a fantastic thing I think it's it's one of the best things that can happen is that you can have a tap room that has people who aren't aren't interested in beer wanting to come in through the front door because it's a nice place to be. Exactly. Yeah. 
And exactly. then they might, as you say, Steve, like become interested in beer because it's simply just a really nice place to be. But even if they don't, they'll have a positive experience of the environment they've been in. Yeah. So there is still a different environment to tap rooms, to pubs. And, and, and on the whole, I think a large amount of the responses that we had to this were saying the same that, that as what we've been oh, yeah. saying. It's, it's that, yes, we want beer to be the primary offering, but there absolutely should be a secondary offering for people that don't drink beer yeah. or, or people in the group that don't drink beer. Let, let's, let's just pick up on a, on, on, on a few of those. I mean, there were loads of responses here, and, and we're just going to cherry-pick a few yeah. because that, they are all in a very similar vein. So from John Moore at The Beer Idiot and also very similar comments from Becky Land at Becky Land, Gary at Workshop Driver, Justin Mason at 1970s Boy, James at James Moose, Miles Lambert at Miles Lambert, Points of Brew at Points of Brew, Craig Henderson at the MCR Smoggy, Gregor at Gregor J and Stu Chan at Chance Stu. I think having more options just makes sense. A couple of soft drinks, spirits and wines will make non-beer drinkers happy. It doesn't have to be the size of a pub range, it's also a good chance to use other independent producers and suppliers. And, and I think that's a key thing, isn't it? what you were saying earlier about that you can reach out now to those cider producers, yeah, soda producers. Like, I, I'm, I'm utterly, like, blessed now to, like, I, I live in south-east London now as opposed to north London, and... Um, well, you're not well, so utterly blessed tonight the trains are fucked. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see. <laughs> like, the, the bottle shop that is close to me sells sawdust bottles. They've just opened a new bar called Joyce and they've made that an incredibly inclusive space which is all about the like the full breadth of kind of like quality like drink offering they can do like there's amazing beers on like the tap list literally nobody would disagree with how good that tap list is but then they've also got like really good wines and like really good cider on as well it's like I don't think it's feasible as an independent business anymore to open anything less than an inclusive offering. And I think that's a good use of the word yeah. actually. Yeah. Good use of the word though. And I think that's that's summed up perfectly with this one comment we had. This is from Graham K. A. McAteer at Follow the Beardy. Um, more selection means wider customer base. Wider customer base means better revenue. Better revenue means more money to make better beer. Everyone wins. Exactly. It's a very, very good point from yeah. Graham. I don't, I don't think we can follow on from that point, can we? <laughs> like I say, loads of comments on, on this yeah. one. We just, we just can't include them all. But there, um, were, there was a very similar nature running yeah. through them all, wasn't there? Yeah. And, and I'm still surprised that the 19% of people that yeah. only want beer at a, a, a tap room. But maybe, they're, maybe they're the ones who go on their own. Maybe, yeah. Because in which case, not being funny, but that, it makes it easier. Yeah, which goes back to our earlier discussion about yeah. where are you most happy having a beer on your own yeah. exactly it's, it's more, perhaps more of an expectation yeah than exactly what you want yeah so like people might most people might go to you know pubs or to, you know tap rooms expecting a very specific or whether it's a narrow or expansive beer offering but it's not the same <laughs> it's not the same thing as going to these places and expect to be able to accommodate all of your friends. Exactly. Final thoughts on the winter Hefeweizen then? I was right about it. You know that it's a bit more of a sipper. Yeah, for, for me, when I went straight in with, oh, it tastes Belgian-y, that's really died off and a lot of the other flavours have started to come through as I've gone down the beer. 
as it's begun to warm, um, getting a lot more warming characteristics, spices, feel to it. You could almost, I don't know if you could ever do it, but it almost feels like you could mull this. <laughs> mould beer, I'm not sure that's something... I'm sure people have done that. You can mould wine, you can mould cider, there must be a mould beer somewhere. Someone is, hasn't is, done is it. Is that a thing, Chris? Uh, I don't know, but I definitely wouldn't do it to this beer because I feel like it's already got those kind of whatever those characteristics are. But uh, yeah, it's already got yeah. it. I agree, yeah. Yeah. but it's got, it's got those mould characteristics to it, hasn't it? I, I think of it as like a kind of like brioche, uh, a little bit of kind of like a spice bread, caramel kind of feel to it. It's quite rounded. It's like there's loads of sweetness there, but it's like hints of cinnamon at the end for me. I, I, I treat it as, as something that's more like edible than drinkable. Like you feel like you're eating something quite nutritious. That's pro- I think that's probably quite good. <laughs> yeah, it takes that's a bit longer, a great doesn't it? Explanation yeah. of it. It's, it's an edible beer. I'm going to finish my edible right <laughs> yeah. now. Um, we've got one more beer to go, but before before we get into this final beer, we, we do have a, a final question for sure. you, Chris. Um, so this is from Dr. Rob at K as Forest. Not sure I pronounced that right, but um, <laughs> what happened to the old tankards in the tank bar, and are they coming back? Well, I can uh, I can say with, I can say with certainty that the death of the tankards is being greatly exaggerated. Um, Actually, I shall pour into uh, the tankards. Cool. Cool. Yeah, I got it. Um, so the tankards, which I am pouring into, you know, right we, now. We are enjoying our final beer <laughs> from the tankards, aren't we? Yes. Um, it's not fake news, the tankards continue to live. They continue to be available here. You might get a beer of them. Um, we've got loads of them left. You can buy them online for £1.50 as a discount price. That's, that's not bad at all, is it? That's yeah. not bad at all. For, for a bit of glass. Um, and they are also one of my favourite beers, like serving vessels. And so the tank, so just uh, it's something we haven't really touched upon, the serving pours in Howling Hops are one third and two thirds. Yeah. yeah. That's still the only two sized pours? Yes. Yeah, yeah. What was the thinking behind that? It's just a, a, a broad I brush. It, I think it comes from just having that variety of beer available and whilst we've come from a, a pub background that is very pint based it was like an opportunity to if we were going to be a brewery and have that variety of beers available then it was also an opportunity to be somebody who could offer you those kind of beers and different kind of size pours to encourage experimentation just like most people have done I mean I don't feel like a, a two-thirds pour is that weird a thing anymore it seems quite normal to me. I'd be quite happy if it became a bit more widespread, to be honest. Yeah, same here. Yeah. Um, so what have we got in our two-thirds Howling Hops tank? So we've just bought some Well Shots, which is our bourbon barrel-aged aerial stout, 13%. Seems the perfect way to finish today's journey, doesn't it? 13% yeah. on the Monday night. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you very much, Chris. Oh, that's sweet on the nose, isn't it? Yeah, it's quite boozy as well on the nose. So this is, as I mentioned earlier, one of two different barrel-aged beers that we had available at the end of the year. And this is the one that we <laughs> we very much enjoy because of its 
Let's say it's uh, intensity. It is full on, fiber-wise. <laughs> it, it, it really is. Yeah. Full this on. is this but is it's this a very lasting, sweet finish. Yeah. yeah as well. This it's is quite like warm as well. Yeah. yeah. This is like bourbon and beer, and it's like purest form, where you get that rich, like rounded, really vanilla fluid, full-bodied kind of texture to it. You get all the benefits of like a really complex imperial stout, where you get those like six or seven kind of grains or like playing together you make something really complex and really interesting we, what we found really interesting with these two beers is that Yuki had like a higher carbonation sort of light level and was way drier and the well shot was like way lighter in carbonation but felt way fuller body which is why you're going to do a new beer both barrels again. Exactly. Yeah. We're Try again. To, yeah. Uh, See what split, happens next time. Split the yeah. difference. Yeah. Yeah. That'd yeah. be quite good. I mean, what I do think of this, although it's got so much flavour and it lasts for ages, it's quite light. Yeah. It's uh, it's crazy. I actually had somebody on Untapped recently describing it as too thin. Okay. It's not definitely not too it's thick. Not, it's not thin. <laughs> it's it's light. It's light, but it it's is not thin. thin. It's definitely not thin. That is one. That is one. It's thing. not it's, a thin beer that is whatsoever. One thing. It's not. And it's um, it is almost the perfect beer to finish our journey on. Yeah. To, to today, isn't it? I well, mean, if you think we started Southampton Arms, you two both had the Pale XX. Yeah. Yeah. Then we all had the Tropical. So we're in the very sessionable range of beers. Cask beers. Yeah. As, cask as, beers as well. They had some more cask in the Cock Tavern. Yeah. And we've had some tank beer here. And then we've gone to small package, barrel aged beer. Yeah. 13%. It's the only way you can finish a show. Yeah. It, it, it really is. Um, Chris, thank you so much for your time. Well, and, 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 and thank you for taking us through this journey. We've uh, really enjoyed it. Actually. Yeah, it's, it's been, been a pleasure. It's been, it's been great. Monday, the, Monday the afternoon drinking, yeah. Monday evening drinking is very underrated. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, yeah, absolutely. It's the way it's forward. No we'll Monday, see you next Monday. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> every Monday. See you then. Yeah. yeah. Um, obviously, to our listeners, if you want to continue to get involved in this journey conversation we've been having today, use the hashtag opinions and we will find you. Um, we've got quite a big show coming up next, though, haven't we? Yeah, we, we do no sessional beers whatsoever. No. So, our next show is hashtag opinions 100, which is our 100th episode. In which we are doing uh, vertical. I want to call it vertical, or is it, or will we be horizontal? We'll be horizontal by the end okay, of it. Okay, so we're doing we're doing Fuller's Vintage Owls from 2012 to 2019. Yeah, so from when the original beer o'clock show started, yeah, through to the, know, latest the, the latest iteration, iteration yeah. of it. Is this is like is this like the Desert Island version of? Like right, I can just like, well, where you can choose where you want. Yeah, yeah. Oh. I wish. <laughs> if, if Martin has his way, yeah, 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 it will be. Um, There's an island that they have to pay for them, though. <laughs> that's, that, that's our next show, and it's being um, hosted at probably our most favourite pub in the world. Well, yeah, or definitely one of them, where we were at the weekend for yeah. impromptu drinks. So, going to be the Victoria Inn in Colchester. Uh, Rich, the bar manager, is very kindly looking after us. I suspect he just wants to drink our fullers, to be I, honest. I think he does, and, and, and he is our guest host, and he's also taking 
DMs from people right now. So if, if, if any of our listeners want to send any messages, get involved in that yeah, show. So comments, questions, yeah. send, feel free. Send Rich a DM at richtaylor1608. I'm not sure if his DMs are open, but by the time this show goes out, they will be yes. because I'll have a word with him. Uh, because there's no point in us telling people to send him DMs. Or if, if you basically take a question and you do it to the Victoria in Colchester or via Facebook as well. Or, or use opinions or tag yeah. us in. We'll, we'll make sure that Although included. we prefer not to know the questions. Ideally, yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd like them to come in anonymously. So. Yeah, I'd rather not know about it. Yeah, yeah so, so get in touch with Rich. That's going to be our next show. Um, Might be the very last much show looking to be forward to that. Um, <laughs> I think for one final time today, Chris, again, thank you for your time. And um, cheers. Yeah, cheers. And happy guys. new year. Thank you very much.